Welcome to Plants, People, Science, a podcast by the American Society for Horticultural Science, where we talk about all things horticulture. Hey, Sam, how's it going? It's going well. I'm having a good morning, Lara. How about you? Good. I don't know exactly where we left off last time, but I believe our last episode was before I left for my travels abroad to the Federated States of Micronesia and Taiwan. Before you went off to have all those adventures and become like the wisest person I'll ever know. Yeah. So how how was it? <laughs> I definitely can't take that much credit, but I mean, it was amazing. I've never been to the Pacific Islands like that before. And the cultures were so rich and the people were so kind. And I would love to go back at some point, though we'll see if that's in the cards. Ah, that does sound fun. So you went for the food and the people? Is that all you did? Food, people, plants, culture. I mean, they had everything. I don't know exactly what I talked about last time, but in Micronesia, I was working on a project related to food policy and food security, which is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. So it was great to get some experience there. And then in Taiwan, I actually had a really great internship at the World Vegetable Center working on pepper genomics. What have you been doing at home while I've been away? (laughs) At home? um, I've mostly been working in uh, Phytotron. My school has this building called Phytotron that is just full of like dozens of growth chambers that have different plant experiments. And so I've basically been living there and um, I started my strawberry experiment. So I'm really excited about that. I'm so jealous that you have access to a Phytotron. I mean, can you explain for our audience what the difference between a regular greenhouse or growth chamber is versus a Phytotron? <laughs> I might not be able to explain it very well. Um, it's like a facility that is fully dedicated to plant research. Um, like it's, it's like I said, a building that has all these growth chambers. It also has greenhouses on the top of it, but these greenhouses are like, they have an air conditioning system that is closed to the outside so they can be used for like BSL-3 type experiments. Um, and yeah, the facility is just really amazing. And the staff too are like very dedicated to keeping the plants alive. So it's not just like me sitting there alone with my plants. Like I can get the help that I need when I need it. So um, really wonderful experience. Yeah, that is so important. I could not do any of the work that I did in my PhD without all the people that helped with the plant maintenance and greenhouse upkeep. Makes your life easier to have good people around Mm -hmm. you for sure. Yeah, and the lab support too. But you, you come from a really, a pretty big lab, right? Did you feel like you had the social support you needed? Oh yeah, socially, I mean, my my uh, colleague, I'll give her a shout out, Ariane Vasilakis, made a really great comparison of us to the Weasley family, how <laughs> we're all, you know, a great mix of family, but kind of, you know, filling in niches and competing for resources. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever come across your twin, Lara, your like Weasley twin, Uh, my life will be complete. I want to meet like Lara number two. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we get into it? 
Yeah, let's do it. So for this episode, we met up with two wonderful guests in the horticultural therapy field that we're dividing into two different episodes. This short series will share what horticultural therapy is, how it began, and the benefits of receiving it, and what it's like to work as a professional in the field. Today will be part one where we interview Dr. Candice Shoemaker, who shares some of the research behind receiving horticultural therapy that she learned throughout her career as a professor. Part two will be with Abby Jaroslow, who practices horticultural therapy and walks us through her day-to-day as a professional in the field. For those of you who have never heard the phrase horticultural therapy, it is defined by the American Horticultural Therapy Association as the participation in horticultural activities facilitated by a registered horticultural therapist to achieve specific goals within an established treatment, rehabilitation, or vocational plan. Horticultural therapy is an active process which occurs in the context of an established treatment plan where the process itself is considered the therapeutic activity rather than the end product. It is different than community gardening and garden therapy, so we just want to make that clear. Now, a little more detail about our first guest. Dr. Candice Shoemaker is Professor Emeritus of Horticulture and Human Health at Kansas State University. She earned her BS in Floriculture at Michigan State University, her MS in Horticultural Therapy at Kansas State University, and her PhD in Environmental Floriculture at Michigan State University, after which she completed a postdoc at Virginia Tech and taught ornamental horticulture at Barry College while serving as the first director of the School of the Chicago Botanic Garden. A lifelong passion of hers is human issues in horticulture, which led her to start the interest group in the American Society for Horticultural Science. If this interview resonates with you, I highly recommend renewing your membership and joining the American Society for Horticultural Science so you can be part of interest groups like this one. Let's get into it. understand you're from a family who owns a dairy farm and an orchard. What made you want to enter floriculture as an undergraduate? You didn't want to continue the family farm? Yeah, I um, I actually changed my major every year I was an undergrad. So if you look at my transcripts, um, I'm in a different college every year. So I started in education and actually very quickly realized that wasn't where I wanted to be, which is kind of funny where I ended up. Right. Um, and then, then I went into engineering because that's what my older brother did. And, um, he was in civil engineering. And so I thought, Oh, I'll do that. Well, I didn't even know what it was. And when I found out what it was, I was like, I don't want to do that. And then I landed in, um, the, uh, architecture or landscape architecture. So I was in that college and I stayed in that, um, college the longest, Um, But while I was studying landscape architecture, which I did for two years, um, I discovered or realized that I liked horticulture. Um, The courses I was taking in horticulture more than the the design courses, the architecture courses. And so I went and talked with someone in horticulture and and they went over all the different options that were available. And... Um, the one that just resonated the most for me, even though I grew up on a dairy farm and we had orchards and my great grandpa actually had a, um, his whole living was with an orchard, an apple orchard. Um, I didn't go that direction. I just, I like flowers. And so I just picked, and I really like production and greenhouse production. So that's where I, that's where I started. 
was in floriculture and greenhouse production with my hope that I would someday, and maybe this will still happen, um, someday have my own greenhouse business. That was what I had planned to do when I graduated. Very cool. So how did you transition? How did you segue from floriculture and horticulture into hort therapy? Yeah, so I was living out in, so I grew up in Michigan, but I had done a, my internship um, for my bachelor's degree um, at a greenhouse um, outside of Seattle, Washington. And then I ended up staying out there. I just loved it. And and I got a, um, uh, I found a place to live that was a home for handicapped children, a foster home. And I lived in a tree house, which was really fun. Um, and in exchange for my room and board, I took care of the orchard and the gardens and the landscape. Um, I also took uh, helped with the kids um, at night. I did a lot of cooking. Uh, the woman who ran the place, she was a nurse, um, and she was a she was a gourmet cook. And she had this amazing kitchen um, in her in the home for the kids. So it was really fun to cook. And um, anyway, I, there was a there was a couple little boys, but one in particular. He was his name was Danny, and he was eight years old. And he always wanted to be with me when I was outside, and he wanted to garden and just be with me. And and um, he had a pretty significant cerebral palsy, and I didn't. I mean, I didn't really know at all what to do with him. And um, and so the the owner of the place, she suggested that I go and talk with her teach his teacher. And so I went to see the teacher and then she um, scheduled for me to uh, visit with the physical therapist that would work with him. <clears throat> and so one of the things with um, his condition is that he was, um, he was very spastic and he also, his muscles were all tightening up. And so the physical therapist really was just trying to um, maintain the amount of movement that he had um, and not lose it. So she said anything that you could do with him to especially work with his hands so that he can continue to have control with his hands, um, because then he could still feed himself and have some independence would be good. So I would do that. So we'd be out in the in the garden and um, he would be laying down because he couldn't sit up and we'd be pulling weeds and he would just have the biggest smile on his face. He was so happy out there. And um, and then at the same time, it just I mean, talk about just the way things happen. Right. The same time, um, there was an article in the Seattle Times, the, the local newspaper about this thing called horticulture therapy. And. Um, a friend of mine gave it to me and said, hey, this sounds like what you're doing with Danny out in the garden. And I had I had actually heard about hort therapy um, when I was an undergrad at Michigan State because they were um, starting an option in that. And one of the academic advisors was really interested in that. And she had talked to me about it. But um, it would have taken me longer to... to and I was interested in that because I... I I think because of the education piece of, you know, and even with landscape architecture, you get to work with people. Um, I had that interest in people, but, um, but I just didn't, I didn't want to take extra time. I wanted to be out um, as soon as I could. I was done with college. I wanted to do other things. And um, so, but in that article, um, it mentioned Kansas State University. And that was the only university you could get a degree 
in horticulture therapy. There were other universities where there were options, but that was the only university that had a degree. And so I, um, I was going home in the summer for my older brother's wedding. And so I thought, oh, while I'm in Michigan, I'll just drive down to Kansas. Now it's further away than I thought, but it was closer than in Seattle. And, uh, and meet with the professor who ran that program. Um, his name is Dr. Richard Matson. And I was lucky because it happened to be when he was doing his annual conference on horticulture therapy. So I attended that conference. And then, and but I kept wanting to talk with him, but he was really busy. And, you know, I'd see him and I'd say, can I talk to you now? Because really what I wanted to do was just go to K-State and take all the horticulture therapy courses because I already had my degree. And, you know, so I just wanted to study horticulture therapy. So at the end of the conference, he said, well, I have time for you now. And there was another woman, um, her name was Joan, um, that was with him. And we were in the student union. And, um, and they were asking me just some of the craziest questions, like, um, did I like to speak in front of people? And when was the last time I did a, a talk in front of people? And, and what was my writing like? Did I like to write? And I'm like, you know, what in the world are these questions for, you know? Well, but I learned about heart therapy and, you know, I had something to think about and went back to Seattle and, and well, I went back to Michigan for a while and then I finally got back to Seattle and, and there was a letter from Dr. Matson, And he said in the letter that he wanted me to be his graduate student and that he had an assistantship for me and that the graduate school was still waiting for my application. And I, I show this letter to my roommate and I'm like, okay, this is really weird, but I think I think he's going to pay me to come to graduate school because I, you know, I had no plans. In fact, I clearly, I had my, when I was taking plant propagation, my um, lab partner, we were juniors. She already knew she was going to go to graduate school and was, she was talking to me about it. And I just thought that was, I mean, it was like, that was the only time I ever talked about that I can remember about graduate school as an undergrad. And I, I mean, I remember saying to her, I would never go to graduate school. I couldn't wait to get out of college, you know, and get out with my life. And so I knew nothing about graduate school and I didn't know anything about this thing called an assistantship and that they would pay you money to, to go to school. And my roommate says, yeah, I think that's what the letter is saying. And she had a friend that was um, in graduate school at the time. So we called him and asked him and he said, yes. And he explained it to us and stuff. So I thought, well, okay, I guess I'll go to graduate school and get my master's degree in horticulture therapy. So, so it's kind of a long story, but that's sort of how I, I landed and got to study. Um, really lucky, you know, Dr. Matson was one of the, the leaders and founders of this profession, and um, I got to work with him. So yeah, pretty exciting. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I love hearing your path because one, it really resembles my own. I never went into plant biology expecting to become a plant biologist and end up in my PhD in this. I really did this roundabout way that kind of resembles yours where I dabbled in engineering and landscape architecture and all of these similar pathways and ultimately ended up in, in horticulture. Uh, so I love hearing that, but I also really love hearing how you took each opportunity as they came along and really, really seized the day instead of letting them pass by you. And here you are as a, 
you know, a very impressive person in horticultural therapy. Um, and so I guess quickly for the audience who might have never heard what horticultural therapy was, could you quickly define this term? Sure. So horticultural therapy is the use of horticulture, horticulture activities um, in a therapeutic way, um, working with uh, people that are in treatment. And the activities themselves are used um, for the for the health outcomes that are you're striving for in treatment. And so so that's very focused, right? And I think when people hear the word horticultural therapy, they're actually thinking about uh, probably something a little bit more broad. And so sometimes, especially in the profession, um, you'll hear people talk about horticulture therapy and therapeutic horticulture. So therapeutic horticulture is, again, you know, health and wellness through horticulture. So those horticulture activities. Um, But it may not be that necessarily that you're working with clients and that activity is targeting the the health issue um, for that client. But it's more just, you know, they're going to feel better. And um, that might then help them with their issues um, in other ways. So a lot of times, like in in hospitals, especially rehabilitation hospitals, the HORT therapy program is really a time for the patients to get a break. Because if you're in, in the hospital and you're, for example, recovering from a stroke or from a heart attack and you're building strength, and you know you're in physical therapy a couple times a day, and you're in occupational therapy a couple times, and maybe you're in um, uh, speech therapy for an hour every day, and so on. Right? It's a lot of work because they want you in and out pretty quick, right? <clears throat> and but you need time to just kind of re- renew yourself. And a hospital is a, a stressful time anyway, right? And so the horror therapy program may be just a time when you're on a break from all the other therapies and it gives you a time to renew and refresh so that when you go back into the other um, allied health therapies, you can do better. And so that's really therapeutic horticulture. Um, other, other terms that are used to kind of um, recognize the variety of health benefits that we get um, from horticulture and from plants and nature can be you know, social horticulture, um, community horticulture, community gardening. There's a lot of health and wellness benefits from that. Um, and as I said, therapeutic horticulture, garden therapy. So there's a, there's a lot of terms. And, and that's, that's also one of the reasons why the profession is just has struggled. Um, because, because I think too many people think, like if when you and I go out and garden, um, like when I, when my daughter was young, um, and I would be grumpy. I'd get home from work and I'd be grumpy. My daughter would say, mom, you need to go pull some weeds for a while. Cause then you're happier. <laughs> she even, she recognized how much gardening, um, helped me, <laughs> but, that, but that wouldn't be horticulture therapy. Right. I mean, in terms of if you want hort therapy to be a profession, right, then you need professionals that are trained both in horticulture and in therapy and how to bring those two things together um, for targeted health outcomes. Yeah, that's a really uh, good thing to keep in mind. I was not aware of that before. So 
you know, I think of how people have been pulling weeds for probably millions of years at this point, um, before we were even people, I'm sure. But the start of horticultural therapy as a practice, how did that begin? Yeah, so, um, well, actually, from the founding of our country, so Dr. Benjamin Rush was a, he's considered the father of American psychiatry, and he actually signed, was one of the signers of the, um, the, uh, the Constitution. Um, he recognized in mental health um, hospitals, so think about hundreds of years ago in the founding of this nation, what those hospitals might have been like. Um, but he recognized many of them were out in the country, and um, for people who couldn't pay for care, they would work on the farms. They were quite often working farms. And he actually noticed that those who got outside that worked in the farms um, got better. And those who could afford to pay and stay inside um, quite often didn't get better. So even early on, some of his writings were about that. But where the really the profession emerged um, was after, during and after World War II. So um, especially in the 1950s. Um, but what happened is, is rehabilitation medicine really became its own separate entity of um, um, medical practice um, during World War I and World War II, especially World War II, because more soldiers were surviving the battlefield and coming home with um, pretty se severe injuries and had to be taken care of for a long time in the hospital before they could go home. And occupational therapy at the same time was working closely with rehabilitation medicine. And so these soldiers were um, recovering for a long time. And the, the doctors and the occupational therapists were looking for lots of things to keep them occupied, especially the occupational therapists, um, while they were recovering and getting strong enough where they could go home. And, um, and at the same time, the American Gardening Association um, had as one of their mission areas to volunteer in their communities. So they would volunteer at the hospitals and started doing gardening activities with these soldiers, these recovering soldiers. And there were both um, physicians and occupational therapists who really saw some distinctions when it was gardening versus other things that could keep us occupied. So you think about music therapy, art therapy, horticulture therapy. Those all came really at the same time um, out of, uh, especially after World War II. And so that's really how it began um, to be distinguished um, as its own profession. And then um, some, some work at universities, and I'm proud to say at Michigan State University, my alumni or alum, uh, where I graduated from, um, uh, was one of those places that was um, doing some work. And um, it was the horticulture department and um, a physician and an occupational therapist and a social worker that were, that were doing that in the 60s. And then in the 70s, um, the National um, Professional Association, which is now called the American Horticultural Therapy Association, um, was founded. At that time, it was called the National Association for Therapy and Rehabilitation Through Horticulture. So it was a little complicated. So that was smart when they changed it to the American Horticultural Therapy Association. So, so it was really in the 70s when um, uh, the definition of it as a profession, in fact, that's what Dr. Matson was working on. He had gotten a big 
um, uh, National Institute for Health uh, grant to really define horticulture therapy. And that's, that's when I got to work with him. So it was pretty exciting. Yeah. Great. And so when you're talking about seeing patients improve, what kind of benefits are uh, physicians and horticultural therapists and social workers or anyone involved in this process, what kind of benefits are they noticing? Yeah, you know, um, I just, in fact, uh, last fall, I, ga- I gave a talk at the um, American Horticultural Therapy Association annual conference that was on um, the research um, findings that we now have. And um, I started that talk by, like, if, you know, where do you go when you w- want to learn anything new? You go to Google, right? So if you do a Google search, benefits of horticulture therapy, um, you get, you know, millions of hits, Right. And even if you look at like the CDC, um, you can find the benefits of gardening. And, but if you remember, I just talked about horticulture therapy as a profession versus health and wellness that we get, any of us get through horticulture, right? So, so there's actually, um, I'm pleased to say from when I started in the late seventies, um, there's more and more research being done on looking at and understanding um, the health benefits from gardening and from horticulture therapy. Um, there's more on the health benefits of gardening, which is what my research was in, than there is on our understanding of the health benefits from horticultural therapy. So if you think about it as a profession in the healthcare field, right, if we're taking a pill to feel better from the flu or something, um, it's a certain dosage for a certain amount of time that from research we know for most people will make us feel better, right? So in that regard, we've got a long ways to go in terms of horticultural therapy. But um, if we look at it, there's been enough research now that there's actually um, publications probably in the last five or six years that are meta-analysis of the research that's been done looking at um, particularly with older adults, there's a lot of pretty good research now on horticulture therapy programs. And probably the biggest one we have with older adults um, in treatment is with cognitive impairment. So we know that horticultural therapy programs can help sustain or maintain cognitive health. So in terms of uh, people with dementia, it's a really good way to um, help with that um, problem. Um, depression is another one um, that's we've, we've got, I think, pretty good research now that shows um, that it can help positively improve um, depression, anxiety. So those mental health aspects, right? Um, we also know that, and this is from some of my research as well, that um, gardening is a physical activity. So we can have physical improvements. Um, It can help with strength um, and general physical health as well. So so both mental and physical health benefits. And then then we can look at social benefits as well. So, um, and again, a lot of the research has been with older adults. And um, so we know that um, uh, gardening activities, horticulture activities can foster more social interaction. And I quite often tell a story um, when I was getting my PhD, which was in floriculture. Um, I really wanted to do it in human issues and horticulture. 
but that didn't work out. Um, but I connected with a medical school um, at Mich- I was at Michigan State University again for my PhD. Um, I connected with the medical school and they had just started while I was getting my PhD. Um, they called it a cognate through the medical school, but it, it was like a master's degree in gerontology. So while I was getting my PhD, I did, did this um, ger- uh, gerontology cognate and I had to do a, a research project and I had to do a practicum. And I did those at a nursing home. And so I ran a, a horticulture therapy program for a full year um, as for my practicum. And one of my, um, because that's what the, um, the facility wanted was they wanted the, the people to, to socialize more and kind of be, build friendships uh, in the institution, which is hard. Um, so that was one of my goals for my horticultural therapy program was to foster socialization. So I would plan, you know, each week these activities and think about how I could get them to, to talk, right? Well, they would talk to me. Everyone, I had, I had about 12 uh, residents that came to my um, garden club and they would all talk to me. They would answer my questions, but they weren't talking to each other. Well, one week um, in the botanic gardens on campus, they had pruned all the roses and they had just bags of roses, you know, spent roses, right? So I took these bags and, and brought them to the, to the facility and I just dumped all these roses on the table. It was just covered in, in red roses. And I said, all we're going to do today is pull the petals off the, the roses because then we're going to dry them and we'll just leave them on these tables and we'll dry them. And the next week we can make potpourri. So it wasn't a hard activity, right? And we're just sitting there and we're, and of course it smells heavenly, right? They started talking to each other and more people come in and they want to join because it smells good and they're talking to each other and they're sharing stories about, you know, when the first time their husband gave them roses when they were dating or you know the the rose bush that was next to their front porch and the, how every summer when it would start blooming they would remember that i mean it, and they're sharing these stories with not with me with each other you know i was just it was amazing but i didn't plan that you know for that to happen but it worked so so socialization we we know from the research that that's also another good health outcome. Yeah, you're going to open up a new can of worms about aromatherapy, but that's a whole separate exactly, discussion. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Wow. So uh, you have talked then about many of the health benefits of gardening, and you've done a lot of research in this area yourself. Can you talk a little about a little bit about the work that you've done? Yeah, so I focused on, of course, older adults, because I had studied gerontology while I was getting my PhD. And then I also did um, some school garden um, projects as well, research projects as well. And so with the, um, the actually with both of them, it was to really look at um, two primary things. Uh, one was nutrition, and then the second one was physical activity. So we all know we're, you know, it used to, well, it is again now, five servings of fruits and vegetables a day for a healthy diet. You know, actually, it, while I was doing my research, the CDC had changed it to nine 
And then they changed it back because we're not even meeting the five. <laughs> so then why change it to nine when we're, you know, we're, we, we can't even do the five a day. So it's five a day. And then um, our, you know, uh, recommendation for physical activity for health maintenance for all of us is at least 150 minutes um, of moderate intensity physical activity a day. So my question with older adults is, um, if you're a gardener, does that make a difference? And um, can gardening, kind of a bigger question is, can gardening with older adults help with their health, their physical health? And then with youth, it was more about, can we design a program that can help? And we, we targeted eight, nine, and 10-year-olds, so like fourth and fifth grade, right before they're going into middle school. Um, or junior high, um, can we come up with a, a program using gardening that can help them um, start thinking about healthy lifestyle choices, right? So sedentary behavior, um, drinking water, um, uh, screen time, right? And then of course, physical activity and healthy eating. And so so those were, those were the, the two avenues that my whole research uh, career uh, was in. And, and um, we would do a variety of different things, uh, different interventions, and we would do all kinds of different ways of measuring the outcomes. So we would do observation. So we, I would train uh, undergraduate students and they would have a check sheet. And like with older adults, they would go to the older adults' um, homes and just observe them gardening and it specific things that we would have them mark as they watched them. So they were just, it was kind of like, you know, in situ research, right? Um, of course, we did a lot of um, surveys. Um, some of them were things that we wrote ourselves, um, especially like the demographics information we, not, we needed to gather. But then also um, things like, especially with the kids, um, all of my interventions were designed using social cognitive theory. And so with social cognitive theory, uh, some of the things that you target are self-efficacy and outcome expectancies. So we would do, uh, we would use survey instruments that were already shown to be reliable in measuring those um, uh, behaviors in, in kids. Um, there's standard um, eating behavior survey instruments, we would use those. And then we also would measure metabolic things. So we would measure things like heart rate, oxygen consumption. We'd have both the adults and the kids wear accelerometers to measure their movements. And so it was a real mix of things that we would do um, to measure, to understand how they garden, right? Um, and, uh, um, and how long they garden and so on. So it was just a real mix of things that we would do. Great. So what'd you find? So um, with our with our older adults, okay, so these are community dwelling. Most of my research was with community dwelling older adults. And one of the, the, the standardized survey instruments that we used um, was a, a leisure time physical activity assessment that Basically, it was quite a comprehensive um, survey instrument, but it would, we, based on the re results, you could calculate um, 
how much time they spent in leisure time physical activity and if it was um, low intensity, moderate intensity, or high intensity. And gardening was one of those items on that thing. So it was really great because we could look at gardening versus walking versus golfing versus vacuuming, just all different kinds of things, right? So, so we, we took our, our, our study population and we designated them as gardeners or non-gardeners based on the results of that survey. And then we looked at all these health parameters, both from self-report surveys that we did, as well as you know, heart rate and oxygen consumption and so on. And, and what we found, what we learned was, first of all, um, both in terms of the metabolic measurements that we took, as well as the self-report uh, measurements, that they have um, better physical health. So, you know, if you're a gardener or if you've ever been a gardener, um, as you approach um, older age, you might want to think about starting gardening again if, you, if you're not a gardener, because it helps you, um, it can help you, you know, sustain good physical health. Um, mental health was um, actually similar across all of our population. So what we found, what we kind of concluded there was we did this research in Manhattan, Kansas, that um, older adults in Manhattan campus are mentally healthy. <laughs> um, and, um, and then probably one of the biggest findings that we took, and then we did some horticulture therapy type research, was we found that gardeners had stronger hand strength and better finger dexterity. And so, which is really important. I mean, I notice already, I can notice that my hand strength is, is changing um, as I'm aging. And, um, and so I really want to get out and garden. It's minus three here today, so I'm not going to be gardening today. But um, uh, anyway, um, so that finding, we actually then designed a 12-week horticulture therapy program um, and we worked with the rehabilitation unit at our local hospital and worked with occupational therapists. And we recruited um, people that were in outpatient care, still doing therapy, who had had a stroke, but were still in therapy to improve their hand strength. And so we had um, a control group that was in their traditional OT care. And then we had a treatment group that got our 12-week or horticulture therapy um, treatment. And we did plant propagation um, for an hour, um, twice a week for 12 weeks. And our treatment was as effective as the OT treatment. So that was really a fun finding um, to find out. So that's kind of globally what we found out with our, um, our older adult research. With our kids, um, so the grant, the, I got a really big grant that was a four-year project. And, and the biggest thing on that was that we had to measure BMI. So basically weight, right? And, um, and what we, we found, which of course sounds like it was a non-finding, was that there was no change in BMI. And what you want to see is a reduction. Well, our kids weren't overweight to begin with. So why would we want it to go down? Because <laughs> they weren't overweight. Um, we ran an um, after-school gardening program 
Uh, we built high tunnels at the school so that they could garden through the winter in Kansas, which was really fun because they'd come at, out of the school running to the greenhouse in their winter coats through the snow. And then they'd come in and they would harvest strawberries. And we'd have strawberries, you know, in December or spinach in January, you know, so it was fun. Um, I think, and this is more anecdotal, I, but I would say that um, with with my, my school um, projects, that I think that the biggest thing was, is that having the gardening program was just a fun way for the kid, the young people to think about healthy lifestyles, right? In a non-threatening, not through health class where it's boring, you know, it was just, it was fun. And, um, but, and probably the biggest finding, which, um, there's quite a bit of research that supports this, um, is that they were more likely to try new fruits and vegetables. We would always have a snack because it was right after school. So they would start the, the after school program with a snack and it was a healthy snack of fruit or vegetable. And if we could find something different that maybe they never had before, we would buy that. And everyone had to try it. And, um, and so that's a big thing. Like I just know with my daughter at that age, you know, she wasn't into trying new things. So even just, it was just the culture of our, of our club. We're all going to try it. We might like it. We might not. And the volunteer adults, you know, that were our leaders, they didn't, you know, they would say, I don't like that. And I'd say, well, you have to try it and don't say you don't like it in front of the kids till after they've all tried it. And so they were game. It was fun. And and a story I like to, to share about this is, so at the end of, of one school year, um, we did a field trip and we took all of our student farmers to meet our college student farmers. So we took them to our student farm on campus and they got to meet the college students. They were really excited. And that day um, on the student farm on campus, they had harvested spinach and they had big bags. I mean, just big bags. Like if it was potato chips, it'd be like the super size of potato chips of the spinach. It was all washed and you know ready to sell at the farmer's market. But they told the kids when they were leaving, they had big boxes of them. They said, if you want a bag of spinach, you can take a bag of spinach. Well, these kids were so excited and they're all grabbing bags of spinach. And they're saying, Dr. Shoemaker, Dr. Shoemaker, can we open it up and start eating it? And I said, well, of course, if you want, there it's washed, it's safe. And um, and some, we had parents who had come along to help us because we had um, two busloads of kids. And um, and these parents are coming up to me and saying, how in the world did you do that? You know, and it's like, it was so much fun. It was just, it was so neat to see. And I mean, but you guys probably know, I mean, fresh spinach right out of the garden, it's really good. So uh, anyway. It's just, so that's probably the biggest finding um, that we had from the youth gardening. It's just their willingness to try. Right. right. And that that's huge because a lot of those, you know, early tendencies can become static and become your adult tendencies. Right. And I personally don't know any children that have been that excited about spinach. So <laughs> I know, right. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so this is a follow-up question to your results. You're reporting, you know, reaching levels of moderate activity that's required by the CDC or willingness to try new foods and stay active. Have there any have there been any reports of self-reported happiness or other emotional benefits? 
Yeah. Um, so we didn't we didn't measure that in our studies. I went back and looked um, just to refresh my mind, and um, so we didn't. We just looked at general mental health in our studies. Um, I do know of studies, especially with children, um, where the, the happiness scale is a really simple scale. It's a scale of one to 10, and it's just different faces. So really, you can use it with any population. Um, it's even used with um, uh, older adults uh, with dementia, and it's been found to be an effective tool to understand their, their happiness score. Uh, when you're when you're saying different faces, you mean like a very happy face versus like a very sad face, and then maybe some intermediate faces for a scale. Exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. And the the biggest one is typically ten faces. Some of them are only six, um, but yeah, it's just it's just called a face happiness scale. Emojis. And, yeah, and it's exactly that's what it is. Exactly, it's emojis. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In fact, every time I want to put an emoji and I see all those choices, I think, oh, I can make a new scale. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this is the one with the big teeth smile. Exactly. This is the one with just like the little line smile. Exactly, okay, straight it. across. You know, that's neutral, right? Um, yeah, it's just emojis. Exactly, exactly. So it's very easy. Um, so there's a, there's been some research uh, that's looked at that. And um, in general, I can say that um, the, the gardening activities, especially if you do like a pre-post um, from one activity. Um, in fact, last year at that conference I just mentioned, um, there, there was a group that reported on a program that they were doing with um, veterans that um, had PTSD and um, they did a pre-post and one of the scales that they used was that scale. And they would just look at when they arrived at the garden, they would do it. And quite often at that time, it showed um, that they were not happy. And then before they left, they got back on the bus to go back to the VA hospital. Um, so just during that one hour, one and a half hours that they were at the garden, when they re left, they were happy. And so, um, so yeah, it is used and it shows, um, especially that pre-post during that ex ex experience itself, that um, we feel better. Yeah. Yeah. And this is all self-reported scales. This is just, yeah. And, you know, the thing when you're using, when you're doing human subjects research, right, uh, one of the challenges is um, the burden on them. And if the burden is too great, then you're going to get dropout. And um, so if, when you can find a scale that has had research done on it, that has shown that it's, it's valid and reliable with a population that you are working with, and it's simple, but it's reliable and valid, and it's answering the question you have, then that's, you know, just use it. And so, the, yeah, the happiness scale, doctors use it. Um, Mental health uh, um, professionals use it. Yeah, it's it's an effective scale. Okay, great. And so let's say one of our listeners is hearing you talk about horticultural therapy and they're so inspired to become a horticultural therapist. How do they get training? Do they need to be certified? 
Yeah. So um, there is a professional registration that's available. Um, It's through the American Horticultural Therapy Association. Um, At this point, you do not need to be professionally registered or certified as a horticultural therapist to practice horticultural therapy. So, you know, just like ASHS has the professional certification for horticulturists, um, you don't have to have that, but it certainly um, gives you a leg up, right? Um, And so uh, quite often, especially if you want to work in a healthcare facility, um, you need to or you should have that professional registration. To become professionally registered, it's a combination of coursework and um, a work experience. So you need 480 hours of supervised um, work experience in horticulture therapy. And then you need um, credit hours in horticulture, horticulture therapy, and health and human sciences. Yeah, great. And I know a lot of universities have programs. Like I know Rutgers, my university has a program and the ones that you um, have frequented also, of course, have those programs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's probably, I would say maybe about 10 universities that offer the horticulture therapy coursework. Um, Of course, there's a lot more universities where you can then get the horticulture and the health and human sciences um, coursework. So like introduction to psychology, developmental psychology, social sciences. Um, I think pharmacology is a good course. Um, Aging, uh, youth development. There's a lot of good courses uh, to take. And I think I haven't looked at the requirements from AHTA for a while, but they might have actually specific courses that they require now that you have. Um, I'm not sure. So I would just recommend that you you go to the American Horticulture Therapy Association. It's just AHTA.org and um, look at professional registration and it'll show you. Um, there's uh, um, some um, uh, public gardens also that offer the coursework. And then there's the Horticultural Therapy Institute, which is um, located in Denver, Colorado. And they actually deliver their program across the country. So I know a lot of people take their program. It's very good. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. And so on the other side, if people are listening that want to receive horticultural therapy and they want to incorporate it into their lives, but maybe don't have access to formal therapy sessions, how would they go about incorporating it into their life? Yeah. You know, I think that's a good question. And, and I, I think, um, you know, if you think about mindfulness, I think that's a really good way to to approach it. So when you're out in nature, be mindful of nature. Um, when you're um, at the farmer's market, be mindful of the produce that you're looking at. And... Um, and if you, even if you have only one house plant in your apartment or your home and you're watering it, be mindful while you're there watering it. Um, smell the difference because when you're watering, you're going to smell that soil, right? And if you don't smell it anymore, it's time to put fresh soil in there. <laughs> um, but I think I think it's, it's related to being mindful, you know? And I think... Um, <laughs> My dad 
my dad had an orchard and a big garden and it's, the garden got bigger and bigger when he retired. And, um, and of course I would talk to him about, you know, don't you feel better when you're out there? And of course he would just, he was a world war II veteran. I mean, you know, he was a guy and he would just like chuckle, you know, but, but as he got older, um, and like his, he had um, knee problems and his doctor told him to go walk in the mall, which, you know, like, he's not going to do that. I mean, I, you know, he probably never even been in the mall, you know, <laughs> and he mentioned that to me one time. And I said, well, dad, instead of driving your tractor around all the time, when you're out in the orchard, why don't you walk? And, um, or, you know, at least if you take the tractor out with your wagon, with all your tools in it, think about walking for many trees before you move the tractor. And, and, you know, and he went, Oh yeah, I can do that. And, um, and, and I think, I think I just saw with my dad that he became more aware of how he was feeling good when he went out in the orchard. Cause he didn't have to be out there. I mean, this was Michigan, right? So he wasn't out there every day year round. And when there would be periods of time where he wasn't out there and then he'd go out there, I think he started just going, you know what? I do feel better when I'm out here. Even when he would just walk around the orchard to look at the trees and make a note of what had to be done next, he was feeling better. So I think for every, for all of us, just being mindful. Um, and if you have a garden and you're just like, you know, oh, I got to go out there and work. Maybe that's how you start. But once you get out there, just be mindful, smell, listen, feel with your plants. I, I think that's the way to do it. Yeah, and that's the the true theme of therapy, right? I feel like all therapies come back to being mindful. So that's how I know you're the, the real yeah. deal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I guess the last couple of questions I have for you is, you know, what do you want the public to know about? horticultural therapy and then horticultural therapists to know about your research? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, it's really easy for us to think, well, we all feel better when we're around, especially if we're, we're horticulturists, right? If most of the people that are listening to this are horticulturists, they're just going to go, well, yeah, you know, and they provide us, you know, I mean, there's so many benefits from plants, right? Um, we, we, our oxygen, uh, they provide shade, you know, they modify the environment. I mean, there's just, you know, water management. There's just a lot of things, right? And so it's easy for us to take plants for granted. And, and so I think the first thing is to just go, yeah, there's a lot of benefits from plants, from gardening, from horticulture. But when we talk about horticultural therapy, versus all the other many, 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 many benefits that we have from horticulture. It is a distinct profession that have trained professionals selecting specific horticultural tasks or activities that are known to help with the health um, issue that that person is in treatment for. And so I think that's really what I'd like people to start really recognizing versus, you know, therapeutic horticulture or garden therapy or social horticulture, where we have all these benefits. You know, if you think about, for example, someone who runs a community garden, 
right? Someone who runs a community garden is going to talk about an awful lot of benefits beyond the tons of produce that they produce every year, right? There's social benefits. There's public health benefits. There's, you know, there's um, activist benefits. You know, those they save neighborhoods sometimes because of a community garden. So, but that's not horticulture therapy because those are community dwelling people that are coming together to have produce or flowers and socialize, maybe to change the environment, an abandoned lot in an inner city to something beautiful, right? But they're not there in treatment being led by a health professional. And so that's really what I, I think what I wanna say about horticulture therapy versus all the other benefits that we get from horticulture. Got it. So you want to make sure that everyone knows horticultural therapy is this distinct, very specific field meant for treating people through horticulture, whereas, you know, gardening and all of these other activities, they could be really, really beneficial, but it is a separate field and a separate categorization. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for this interview, Dr. Shoemaker. It's been a pleasure to have you on. I've really appreciated it. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) To find Dr. Candace Shoemaker's research, you can find some of her work in Hort Science and Hort Technology, which are open source peer-reviewed journals published by the American Society for Horticultural Science. Links to these articles will be provided in the show notes. If you'd like more information about the American Society for Horticultural Science in general, you can go to ashs.org. Sam, if people want to follow your work, what's the best way? You can find me on LinkedIn at Samson Humphrey. Lara, and what about you? You can follow me on Instagram at theplantphd or on LinkedIn with the tag Lara Brindisi. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for our next podcast. ASHS podcasts are made possible by member dues and volunteerism. Please go to ashs.org to learn more. If you are not already a member of ASHS, we invite you to join us. ASHS is a not-for-profit and your donations are tax deductible. This episode was hosted by Sam Humphrey and Lara Brindisi. Special thanks to our audio engineer, Alex Fraser, our research team, Lena Wilson and Andrew Komatz, our ASHS support team, Sarah Powell and Sally Murphy, and our musician, John Clark.